Tonight we gather for the most ancient service in the Christian church, the great vigil of Easter. A friend of mine calls it the mother of all church services. And you may be thinking that too. Certainly not a short service, is it? Although sadly, many Episcopalians never get to experience it. It's an important service for a number of reasons. It ties us closely to our spiritual forebears, who from about the third century have been celebrating Easter almost exactly the same way that we're doing it tonight. It also reminds us of our baptism, in which the early church took place only on this night. In our readings, we heard a recap of God's salvation plan for us, which began at the time of creation, extends through the exodus of Israel from Egypt, is spoken of by the Old Testament prophets, and finally finds its fulfillment in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. No wonder with all of these themes and readings, our service tonight is a kind of reader's digest of the Christian faith. Speaking personally, it is also a service that brought me into the Episcopal Church. When I was in college, back in the Jurassic period, I went through a time, like many college students do, after they've heard a couple of existential philosophers or heard an outspoken atheist professor, I went through a period that I couldn't believe in God. A friend invited me to come to an Easter vigil service at her church in Portland, Oregon, and I went on sort of a dare. Now, the church I visited, St. Mark's, was very high church. Lots of bells and smells, as they say. They also did the Easter service, the the vigil service, at its ideal and historically proper time of 5 a.m. on Easter morning. Now, almost no church does that these days. It's too hard to get the choir members out of bed. Do you want to do it at 5 a.m. next year? No. Okay. We gathered in complete darkness in the church, except for one candle for the reader to read all nine lessons. We did abbreviate it. There's actually nine lessons. By the time the readings were finished, one could see just a faint glimmer of dawn through the stained glass windows. But when the priest announced to the congregation, the Lord is risen, he is risen indeed, all the lights came on at once with a, with a sound of a chord on the full organ. The altar was ablaze with candles and flowers, and a chill went up my spine, and I've never been the same since. This was what I was looking for, a proclamation of light over darkness, of life over death, of Easter over Good Friday. Resurrection was not about figuring the world out with my head. It was about letting the light of God shine in my heart. I didn't know it at the time, but Easter vigil services, or as they are known to most Christians today, Easter sunrise services, are the most popular church services in America. 
There will be lots of people at church tomorrow in church buildings like this one, but even more will be in places like the Cardinal Stadium in Glendale or the Hollywood Bowl or at the edge of the Grand Canyon. And it's no wonder that so many millions around the country are moved by the Easter symbolism of the victory of light over darkness. The first Easter began in darkness. In all the gospel accounts, the women approached Jesus' tomb, quote, while it was still dark. Have you ever noticed how in the Bible God always works under the cover of darkness? The psalmist says that God moves in clouds and deep darkness. God's kind of a night owl. The earth is created when darkness covers the face of the deep. Passover takes place in the middle of the night. Jesus is born at night. At Jesus' crucifixion on Good Friday, there is deep darkness even in the middle of the afternoon. A couple of years ago in Phoenix, we had a big thunderstorm on Good Friday. Remember that? It got really dark about 3 o'clock. The Bible associates darkness and night with mystery. God's actions are always mysterious and hidden, not accessible to the light of day, or we might say the light of reason. We humans, however, find nighttime scary and terrifying. Bad things happen at night. Violent crimes take place at night. The ER at the hospital is most crowded around midnight. And who of us doesn't dread that phone call that wakes us up from sleep at 3 a.m.? I've been much taken by a little book by the theologian Barbara Brown Taylor called Learning to Walk in the Dark. She figures that just as it is impossible to imagine faith without light, it is also impossible to imagine the world without darkness. From the time we were little and made our parents leave a nightlight on for us, we have feared the darkness. As we grew up, the dark began to take on new and scary shapes, like a cancer diagnosis, the loss of a loved one, a divorce, being on unemployment, the pain of a chronic illness, or a general despair about life. We can all relate to what St. John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul. But Taylor believes that we can learn from the darkness, and so she spent several years of her writing life visiting dark places, like basements, caves, and the desert at night. She concludes that often our most life-changing encounters with the divine happen in the dark. That is the message of the Easter Vigil story, that it was at the moment that God seemed most absent that God became the most powerful in the darkness of that first Easter dawn. The resurrection happened in the middle of the night. While it was still dark, Jesus burst the bonds of death. And that is the promise of Easter for us as well, 
that no matter how dark things may seem, dawn will come, life will return, light will come. Of course, there'll still be darkness. We will have a wonderful celebration here tonight and tomorrow, but on Monday we will all go back to work and to our daily routines, and whatever suffering we bring with us might still be there. But we can rejoice in knowing that our pain is not the end of the story. Even though the resurrection happened long ago, and sometimes seems so mysterious and incredible that we wonder if it can possibly be true. We rejoice in knowing that although our daily struggles may not be over, the victory has been won. This is, after all, the meaning of the word gospel. We translate it as good news, but actually in Greek, it's a victory shout. It's the message that the runner brings into a city of a, of a military victory far, far away, and he says, we've won. The strife is over. The battle done. When I was about 12 years old, my father, who was a Presbyterian minister in Phoenix, was asked to participate in the annual radio broadcast of the Easter sunrise service from the rim of the Grand Canyon. I think for about 80 years now, this service has been broadcast around the world, especially to troops stationed overseas. While my dad went into the studio set up at the Bright Angel Lodge, my mom and my brother and I sat outside with the live audience of several hundred people in freezing cold with our feet in the snow. We had arrived about 5 a.m. in the darkness of that Easter morning, but it soon became evident that there was a big problem, namely, no sunrise. Fog blanketed the canyon, and the sky overhead was a thick gray overcast. And yet for the radio audience, the show had to go on. So at the appropriate time, the announcer did his best. And now, as the first rays of the sun touch the top of Horseshoe Mesa, Vishnu Temple, and Wotan's throne, the canyon is slowly filled with a glowing golden light. Well, those of us outside could only ask ourselves, like, where? <laughs> what? But of course the sun was really there, although we couldn't see it. Easter had come, even though we were still in gloom and cold. The sun had risen, and God's sun had risen too. And somehow, that was all we needed to know. Tonight, we remember that God works most powerfully, even in the middle of the night. He conquered death in an ancient tomb in Palestine. And he conquers the forces of death in our own lives yet today. Even before the dawn comes, God comes. And this is all we need to know, that he is risen. He is risen indeed.